Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a cloudy day here in the capital as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. My name is Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on the programme today by Bob Barber. Bob is the Director and Chief Executive of the Centre for Competitiveness at Northern Ireland, an independent private sector, not-for-profit, non-partisan membership organisation. Bob, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on today's programme. Yeah, thank you very much. Appreciate the opportunity. It's a real pleasure having you join us as well, Bob. Now, um, the purpose of this podcast is to establish first and foremost your take on leadership. So firstly, if we take that word leader aside for a moment and just explore that in more depth, I'm interested to understand what that word actually means to you. What should a leader be in your view? Well, uh, I guess it means to me specifically that leadership is responsible to lead and create strategic roadmaps for their business or their region, in my case. Um, in terms of the private sector view of things, I think there are many tools and techniques available to assist the willing in carrying out a new and, uh, and also niche opportunities uh, through rethinking strategy, innovation, and igniting growth. I think that's leaders' overall responsibilities to lead. Um, I think we understand in English what lead means, <laughs> mm. to go in front, to set the vision, set the objectives, and and also to encourage uh, those that are with you to come along on that journey. So that's leadership, and I think leadership's not uh, a single uh, individual, it's a team effect, uh, effect it's a team mm. an initiative, but someone has to present the, the, the opportunity, the case for, for moving forward. I suppose that leadership and management can be categorised as different things, but when it comes to being a leader, you have to, as you say, be able to lead people. So people management inevitably does come over as a little bit of a crossover in that sense. So when it comes to sort of working with people yourself, Bob, what would you say your sort of personal people management style sort of is? Well, I'm I'm strategic and I'm visionary. Uh, That's my personal. I'm less of a detailed manager. Mm. I suppose I see that in government as well. Uh, I see the Prime Minister as a more of a visionary, as an uh, enthusiastic, enthusiastic person, as opposed to the detail. And I guess I would probably put myself uh, more in that position of, of uh, strategic outlooks as opposed to managing process. And you, know, we, you need management and you need process management, but mm. I think you also need direction. Um, and that's to set new direction, transformation, change, those type of things is what a leader is responsible. I feel that's their job, really, to do. Providing direction, as you say, there is incredibly important, let alone at a time such as this, where we're undergoing a crisis such as the COVID-19 situation. Um, yes. How has it affected yourselves um, at the Centre for Competitiveness in uh, Northern Ireland, um, this uh, pandemic situation? Because I can imagine that the way that it's had an impact on the private sector, it's certainly had an impact on you as well. Yes. Well, the year 2020 has been a watershed year in the history of the nation, apart from just Northern Ireland but also the global economic landscape. I think the COVID-19 pandemic um, coming ahead of the the looming Brexit uncertainties, uh, the possible recession and the increases coming with it in cost, um, I think will present Northern Ireland uh, with a private sector with significant competitive challenges, certainly in the days ahead and months ahead. 
Um, I don't believe some companies, I believe some companies are not equipped to survive because they do not have the fundamental concepts of competitiveness in place to thrive and grow. So post-COVID-19, there will be a fundamental shift in the nature and style of competitiveness. I think this shift will affect the way we live and how we make a living. Uh, I think the next phase will be driven by transformations that have already started to take place you know, during the lockdown. I mean, the shift towards a new society, and we have the geopolitical uncertainties, mm. uh, the restructuring uh, to a new economy with increased regulation. I think communications will be critically a critical element in all this. I can also envisage the emergence of uh, innovative new enterprises, new skills for new ways of working, and that's, of course, the digital, digital disruption. Interesting, the use of the internet has gone up 700% in the last three months. It hasn't broken. It's still working. I don't think I could say that about the electricity network or the water networks, mm. but it's working. And we now have a whole emergencies of, of uh, digital healthcare, if you like, or, or uh, digital commerce, digital education. Uh, there's a whole new, uh, in fact, the supply chain uh, with resource scarcity would be a problem around total flexibility. I'm thinking Northern Ireland now. You know, the environmental, climate change and decarbonisation. So the world is changing. And I'm not sure that we're ready for it. Um, the way we should be in terms of our, our leaders and business and in government. I think it's time they start to rethink and reboot the economy in a joint mission, which is not impossible, of course. Mm. And so uh, I don't want to over, overstate this, but I think for this political leadership and informed business leadership, it's going to be essential as we move from where we are to where we've got to get to. And it's not going to be done in six months either, but it needs a steady hand at the terror. That's just my maybe long-winded <laughs> response to your mm. question. I hope it wasn't too long. But oh, no. something that, that burns dear in my heart. No, I think you're absolutely right. I think there are some real features of this lockdown period that could end up being permanent parts of the way that business ends up functioning in this uh, country. And one of those is likely to be a review of our working practices. Office environments may not be back fully in vogue ever again. We may see more and more people working from home on a personal basis. Do you think that there is still sort of a place for that sort of common office working environment in the future? Or do you see that sort of gradually being phased out? Or will there maybe be a little bit of a hybrid system in place in future, do you think? Well, I think the office of the future is quite different from the office of today. Um, I think a lot more um, just, I mean, I'm working at the moment uh, on, with my own people, on uh, actually working from home more and less in the office. So we don't need the same um, buildings, same room. Uh, I think there's a whole issue there around the whole um, uh, use of you know, office space, um, and we we have been working very effectively uh, actually over the pandemic uh, period from our homes as a staff. We have Zoom. I mean, we, we had all this, we had all this technology before. We never used it. <laughs> We're now using it. <laughs> so, and it's working effectively. Now, I know we have to meet. We're social beings. And we have to meet from time to time. Mm. But a lot of our work we can do from our um, our homes actually, and I think. That's going to change uh, going out in the future. Um, I know there's 
there's ways of managing that that sometimes not too popular um, in terms of some of the consultancy companies um, where people are sort of measured the time away from their computer. I don't know how that is going to go down, but I do know that the office of the future will be much spatial than it is today. Uh, spatial. I've, I've seen pictures in Malaysia of the new office of the future and it's much more spatial and it's much more IT generated, more driven. Uh, at least that's what their plans anyway. So I think that's what I think office will be more play, more spatial and recreational and more mm-hmm. for team discussion as opposed to someone sitting at a desk. I think the desk work can be done at home. A lot of the desk work. I think um, I can certainly see where you're uh, coming from uh, from that point of view, uh, Bob. And um, during this period as well, uh, what we have also seen as well as um, an emergence of the importance of sort of mental health and well-being, particularly so we're within yes. leadership. Yeah. Um, just how important do you think that is, not just in terms of looking after those of your colleagues and employees, but also those around you, but also essentially your own as well, most importantly, because it can be a lonely place being a leadership role when a lot of people are looking to you for reassurance. And then sometimes with the clarity of information out there, sometimes it's difficult to provide that. Yeah. Well, I think, as I said, we're social beings and we need to be together for sure. Um, but there's time for silence and there's time for reflection. There's time when you have to do your work. Uh, but there's also time, and I think that's the difference between the spatial office and the office of today, which is really people sitting in rows of desks, uh, working away, and they can talk over the desk. Okay, that's not really spatial in a sense. It's not really... Um, I think people need time out. I mean, where we, the innovation centre where we are, we have a breakout spaces for you know games of... of, of uh, People have little games and, and different competitions and, and work together. I think that's been good. Um, it's a more relaxed environment, and I think that's important. Like the workplace has to be more relaxed rather than the pressure cooker that some are, which I am not in favour of. But I think we have to realise, we, we think, we think um, the whole social aspects of people, their life, their mental health, and their things we just talked about, and I think that's, uh, that's achieved by a redesign of the office mm. and how people work, new ways of working. And as you said earlier, of course, I think, um, yeah, it makes sense, certainly. And um, as you've said as well, the, the government is going to have to be um, playing a key part in um, sort of these changes that are going to be uh, coming about. Just sort of reflecting on the leadership that they've shown throughout the pandemic thus far. Of course, there's been a great deal of debate about that, just how clear certain guidance has been. From your point of view, have you been satisfied with what you've been hearing from the government point of view? And I know, of course, there's the divergence issue between Westminster and Stormont in some cases. But has it been well, clear I, enough I, for you really what's honest, been expected? I, I find it confusing. To be honest, mm. I mean, um, there's so much uncertainty. I know, and it's new. They have never faced this before. So they're, they're only human beings like ourselves, and you have to do the best you can in the circumstances that arise. But uh, there's mixed messages coming out, and uh, I'm not sure it's clear what's uh, expected. One says one thing, another says another thing. Uh, one expert says one thing, another expert says another thing. I think there's a little a lack, a little bit of cohesion, and I'm not sure that 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 uh, the messages are clear and concise. I know they try. I'm not criticising them. It's a difficult job. But um, from our standpoint, uh, we wonder what's what's next. What, you know, there's no... 
well, I, I guess each region has its own responsibilities. It's a bit like America, where each governor <laughs> has responsibility for his own state to some extent. There's very little that the national government can do or the federal government. But in this case, I think there's lack of clarity coming from our national government, and that's just the West Downing Street. Uh, and I say I don't want to be too critical of them, but I certainly don't know sometimes what's what's really the plan. And then you find Scotland doing something different and criticising them and so on and so forth. So I think there, there's not great cohesion, which is unfortunate. But anyway, we'll get through it. I hope I'm doing our best. Because these, these days are difficult for everyone. Mm. And I don't want to, again, be too critical of government. Just that the communications way and things they say, and one says one thing and another says another thing. And I know it's difficult in a large environment to keep everybody on track. But it would help if they could. I just don't know what the plans are, honestly. I do know the things that I understand is that we're heading into an area in October where unless something's drastically done, I mean, drastic decisions are taken, we're going to end up with 11 million people unemployed. We're going to end up with 2 trillion in debt, which we're going to end with anyway. And I know the Chancellor's doing his best. I mean, he's doing really, really good. But we have challenges out there that need a lot of attention. Mm. And they need to be coordinated. And, and what I see from a Northern Ireland perspective, we're just, we're, we're, we're a very immature um, government here, as you would know from our past. And I think they need help, uh, to be quite honest. And I think they've taken a direction from London. Um, Scotland's more self-assured, I think, as is Wales. But our, our our situation here is a little bit less mature. And I think that we could do a little bit more help for London in terms of direction, because uh, they're struggling. And so uh, it's difficult when you get mixed messages from London, and then our own people are not that maybe um, sure of what to do. I think if you look at the Welsh system, the Welsh response to this has been excellent, I think, in terms of how they put together a plan where all the departments shared their uh, some financial burden to make a, a plan which would look at reviving the economy. If I look at our situation here in Northern Ireland, we have uh, obviously political differences and people looking after their own, if you like, um, department. There's less sharing. And I think what we need to be seeing is a more sharing across departments mm. of the finance to make it... Um, Available for a bigger uh, uh, two and two makes five, if you understand me. Mm. And we don't have that just yet. I understand. So we have a regional problem, yeah. uh, but we have a national problem. Mm. A national problem is one of communication, I think, of direction. A regional problem is one of division. And I think it's fair to say that in this instance, we do need leadership now more than ever going forward and thinking about what that future is essentially yeah. going to hold, particularly over the course of the year, uh, the next year. Um, what do you envision yeah. being on the horizon, Bob, for yourself, for the Centre for Competitiveness, for competitiveness, competitiveness as a whole? And what do you really sort of hope to achieve over the course of the next year as we well, adjust to this is, new normal? The Centre for Competitiveness operates within a global partnership that has the same mission and desire for other, as other nations to see their region prosper and provide mm -hmm. a future for those that follow. And we have 
uh, we're part of the Global Federation of Competitive Councils, headquartered in Washington. Um, we are the lead organization for the European uh, Leadership and Business Management Assessment uh, model for competitiveness. So we operate very much within a global context as an organization. And we get best practices. We watch what our countries are doing. In fact, after this call, I'm on another call uh, with um, global leaders on the the way they're looking at, say, Japan. How are you getting out of COVID-19? And another one, Argentina. We're looking at what's happening in in, um, in um, Australia. And um, we have academics and people coming on talking about how their companies are approaching getting out of COVID-19. I would like this conversation I'm having with you. So um, we work, operate very much in a, a global partnership model. So we try and get the best we can and then feed that in to the ministry here, uh, to the Department of Economy. Uh, every two weeks or so, we meet with them. And with the CBI, uh, Institute of Directors, my organization, uh, the Chamber of Commerce, we form what they call the Business Alliance. And as an alliance, we come together and that's with more than lobby. We come with recommendations to government on how they should tackle some of these challenges that we're facing. And that includes grants and support, financial support and so on. Certainly going to be interesting times uh, for sure in the uh, the future, Bob. And, you know, given how insightful it's been having you join us to discuss some of these issues today i actually think it would be fantastic to catch up at some point in the next year just to see what state we're in at that point in time because there is still a great yeah. many va- uh, variables in all of this isn't there well I, th- I think we provide strong regional value and innovation and business management leadership in the public private and voluntary sectors you know to drive those new opportunities and embed the continuous improvements and the innovation culture within the organizations um that's, that's our role, and we try and do that as best we can with limited resources. And as you say, as a not-for-profit organization, it's, it, it, it can be difficult. But if you provide value, then you get support. That's why I look after. Exactly. So that's, that's us, you know? Mm. I have to say, Bob, it's been a real pleasure having you join us to talk about some of these um, issues uh, today. And I really do appreciate the time taken to uh, meet with us on the programme. Um, most importantly, until we do hopefully touch base in future, do continue to take care and stay safe with all still going on because there is still plenty of time for things to change. We don't know whether there'll be a second spike, for example. So let's just hope and keep our fingers crossed that the trajectory is going to be upward from here on in. So, sorry, I missed that. I missed your last bit there. Yeah, let's just hope that the trajectory from here on in is going to be constantly upward and we're not going to have to backtrack and return to the lockdown yes, because indeed. there is still that variable of a second spike, of course. Yeah. Yeah. That was Bob Barber speaking, Director and Chief Executive of the Centre for Competitiveness Northern Ireland. Coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is today an active member of the House of Lords, Chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, and of course a prominent former Labour MP and Secretary of State. During his political career, Lord Blunkett rose to prominence to become one of the most notable politicians of his generation 
holding various senior positions in the cabinet of then Prime Minister Tony Blair and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years despite being blind from birth. He was elevated to the House of Lords back in August 2015 as Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough, his old constituency. And I hope that you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with Lord Blunkett. All of that is, of course, coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council 
will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's a severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's a, had his life in... Uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. 
And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top, and that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice, uh, the health secretary often chairs corporate meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows, those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that 
Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions, having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging, I, I think it would. people criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown, sh um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations? that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. 
I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it, 
tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May on the side of the Hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the, uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a uh, professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, 
but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and um, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition, more importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition as well as a government that we clearly want to do well because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, Sakir uh, Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can 
support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government. Mm-hmm. But also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority in historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, thank really you for coming on the uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.